Well, let me invite you to turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, and while you're finding your place, I'll say a few words of introduction. Calvin Coolidge, our 30th president, was a man of few words. He was also a committed believer. Once, when his wife could not join him for church on a Sunday morning, she asked him later that day what the sermon was about. Sin, he replied. So she pressed him and asked, well, what did the preacher say about it? He responded, he was against it. Well, I'm against sin also, for Jesus speaks against it in the text this morning. But I hope that you'll be able to leave with the ability to say a bit more about, uh, about sin and about, about why we should be against it, but not just why, but how we should be against it. For that's what Jesus shows us in this text, how as a church together we might encourage one another so that we might not sin. And he does it in two primary ways. First, by teaching his disciples that we ought not to be a cause for stumbling in the life of another believer. And, positively, by calling us to graciously confront one another, to graciously challenge one another when we stumble, by calling each other to repent and to believe by granting forgiveness as people repent and believe. That's what we ought to do as a church with one another as we, uh, as we pursue holiness together. And that's really the import of the text this morning. And so if you found your place with me in Luke 17, we'll look at the first four verses of this chapter. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him... If a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, then that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Father in heaven, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you would give us grace, that you would give us wisdom and understanding by your grace so that we might understand and apply these words in our lives. Lord, may we learn from your Son as we consider his words. May we learn from Christ our Lord as we think upon the things that he taught his disciples and teaches us so that we might be people who pursue holiness together with all grace toward one another. We might be a people who, rather than causing others to stumble, would seek to make others stand. We pray that you would work in us in this way, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me begin by saying a little bit about the nature of the gospel. In terms of its simple facts, we've learned from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that the gospel is a simple proclamation that Jesus Christ, the Lord, Our God, the very Son of God, became a man, gave His life on the cross. He died, He was buried, and He rose from the dead in accordance with the Scriptures. And that gospel proclaims a purpose for this testimony, that Jesus died for our sins. That is, He atoned for our sins by His death as a sacrifice on the cross. He turned away the wrath of God through His death on the cross. 
And through His righteousness, His perfect righteousness, we are able to be counted as righteous before God, not by any works that we ourselves do, but through faith in Christ. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, God counts that. He credits that to our account as though it were the necessary righteousness that we need to be qualified for the eternal inheritance, the eternal inheritance of the children of God. We don't qualify ourselves through our holiness. We are qualified by God's grace, administered through our faith, mediated through our faith. That is the gospel proclamation. And yet, the gospel also calls us to pursue a life of holiness because it does not merely proclaim Christ's death, it also proclaims His resurrection. And what we see throughout the New Testament is that Christ's resurrection has an important bearing upon our life. It does not only guarantee our future eternal resurrection life when He comes again. It does guarantee that. But not only that, it also guarantees our present resurrection life now. We're not physically raised. We still live in the corruption of this body that will die. But spiritually, if we are in Christ, we have been united with Him so that the New Testament writers can say, you really have died and you really have been raised from the dead in Christ. You share in His death and His resurrection so that it is your death and your resurrection. Or to put it in the language of the Apostle John, you have been born again if you are in Christ. And the consistent teaching of the New Testament then is that if we are in Christ and we have this new life now, this resurrection life now, we need to be getting busy. We need to get busy living as resurrected people. Since then, you have died with Christ and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You're to set your minds and your hearts on heavenly things, we're told in Colossians chapter 3. You're to set your mind and your affections on the things of Christ, and you're to pursue holiness. Just because we cannot commend ourselves to God by our holiness does not mean holiness does not matter in the Christian life. The gospel promises us forgiveness. It promises us righteousness that comes from Christ and is credited to our account, but it also promises us sanctification as the Holy Spirit works in, us, works in us to produce the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of righteousness in our lives. And we need to understand that when we think about the gospel and we think about our life together. We are called to be a holy people and to live holy lives. We naturally would ask the question then, how can we do this? Well, the cause of any increase in holiness is ultimately the Holy Spirit. You don't do it, but that doesn't mean you don't do anything. There's a difference between saying you don't do it and you don't do anything. The Holy Spirit is the one who produces His fruit in you. That's why it's called the fruit of the Spirit. It's not called the fruit of diligent work and diligent effort, nor is it called the fruit of the law. It is called the fruit of the Spirit because these are the fruits that the Spirit produces in us. Love, joy, peace, 
patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. And yet, the way in which the Spirit works is through means, that is, instruments or tools that He has ordained. If you think about uh, a craftsman and you you see a, a great piece of furniture, a chair or a table that's made very well, and you say, who caused that table or that chair to come into being, you would say, the craftsman called it into, he, he brought it into being. You say, how did he do it? He used the tools, the appropriate tools that were at his disposal. He used drills and he used hammers and he used a saw and he used other kinds of tools to fashion the wood or whatever the material he used into the form that he desired. And yet it was the craftsman who brought it into being. We are God's work. We are His workmanship. And the Spirit of God is the one who works in us to form us and fashion us into the image of Jesus Christ our Lord. He is the cause, but He uses instruments in our lives. He uses means of grace, we can call them. They are means of grace because they are God's gracious provision, and He causes them to work in our lives. But they are means because they are things that we can look at we, that, are, that are tangible in some respect and we can set our minds upon and say, this is a means that God has ordained for my growth in holiness, for my sanctification. And we can categorize all of those means of grace under three general headings. God's Word, prayer, and the church. God's Word, prayer, and the church. As we receive God's Word in any sort of way that we might receive it, through our own reading, our own diligent study, through memorization, by sitting here and listening to a preacher preach God's Word, by having it taught to you in a different kind of setting, or by listening to someone else read it, you are receiving God's Word, and it is a means of grace that God is pleased to use in your life to form and fashion you into the image of Christ. When you think about prayer, this is also a means that God has ordained. He has told us to come to Him and pray to Him as our Father, praying things like this as Jesus taught us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. When we are availing ourselves of that means of prayer, are we not asking God to do the very thing He has promised to do, to sanctify us and to make us more like Christ by delivering us from evil, delivering us from temptation, and by protecting us from those things? It doesn't nullify grace. It doesn't nullify the fact that the gospel proclaims a free gift. It simply shows us that that gift is much greater than we might have earlier imagined. That God does not simply have a purpose to forgive us all of our sins and nothing more. But that forgiveness is part of a great and grand purpose whereby He has determined before the foundation of the earth to adopt us as His children and to conform us to the image of His Son so that people who He made in the image of God might be redeemed and remade into Uh, after the likeness of the one who is the perfect image of God, the very Son of God. God uses means to accomplish this objective. The third means, then, that I mentioned is the church, the fellowship of believers. You all are a means that God has given to sanctify one another, to sanctify me. We are a means by which we might all be sanctified. 
We have to ask the question, how do we do that? When we think about the Word, when we think about prayer, those things seem to us at first relatively straightforward. We go to church, we hear the sermon. We read God's Word regularly. We study it, we seek to memorize it, we teach it to our children. We set aside time in our life to pray individually and even corporately. But how as a church, what are some other ways as a church, as the people of God, can we help one another to grow in Christ-likeness? And the answer that Jesus gives us in His instruction to His disciples in this text is twofold, a negative answer and a positive answer. We do not cause others to stumble. We avoid causing others to stumble. We treat it as the worst possible thing that we could imagine causing another to stumble. And we graciously confront others, not so that we might poke them in the eye or become fault finders, but so that we might restore them in a spirit of grace, with all charity, in a loving way, into fellowship with God through repentance and forgiveness. Those are the ways in which Christ has taught His disciples to pursue holiness together corporately. Now, in the first case, we see in the first two verses the negative statement. Jesus says that temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck, he were cast into the sea, than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Now, we need to understand, we need to look a little bit more closely at what it is that Jesus is saying. When I was a child, and even sometimes in adulthood, I liked to push the buttons of my brothers and sister. And they liked to push my buttons. We would provoke one another, and we had a particular aim in mind. We wanted to produce a, an outburst of sinful anger. I'm not saying it's something that's no big deal, something that's very common among children and sometimes among adults when you get them together with their brothers and sisters. But I don't think that that's particularly the kind of provocation that Jesus has in mind in this text. I'm not saying that you should do that kind of thing. I'm not saying that I should do that kind of thing. But I don't want your conscience to be uh, overburdened because you realize that in different ways you've misled someone, not even consciously or not willingly, or simply because of our, uh, the, the sinful way in which we live our lives so often, especially as children. But Jesus is speaking about rather stumbling blocks that would lead someone away from faith or stumbling blocks that would lead someone to their own destruction. Why do I say that? Because the words temptation to sin in the first verse and sin in the second verse in the original language are not the same words that we see for sin in the third and fourth verse. Now that in and of itself doesn't mean anything. There are such things as synonyms. But here are these two words. Uh, in, in Greek, it's actually skandalon. It's what we get the word scandal from, which is merely a way to help us remember the term. It doesn't tell us its meaning per se, but rather the scandalon or to scandalize, scandalizo, to, to, to cause someone to stumble or a stumbling block is another way to translate these terms. And so in the Christian Standard Bible, for instance, the translation reads like this. Offenses will certainly come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea and for him to cause one of these little ones to stumble. And you see that change in terminology, the change in translation from temptations to sin to offenses and from sin to stumble. Why did the translators there choose those words? Because these 
Words, typically when they're used, almost always when they're used, refer to the kind of stumbling block, the kind of offense that would cause someone to go to his own destruction, that would lead a person to reject faith in Christ very often. We see that, for instance, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus uses these words when he teaches people to take a radical action when sin might lead to their destruction. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 29, he says, If your right eye causes you to sin, and here's the same word, sin is that same word that we see here with offenses or causes you to stumble, you could say. If your right eye causes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin or to stumble, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And what Jesus is saying there is that if your propensity to sin, in this context it has to do with lust and adultery and different kinds of things that are common to man, if your propensity to sin would ultimately lead to your destruction, then take a radical action to cut off that temptation. Do whatever is possible so that you do not go to your destruction. Jesus is not teaching a works righteousness that contradicts the gospel I outlined earlier. Rather, he is recognizing that there are certain sins that are of such a serious sort, and we'll think about this a little bit later, what this would look like in a person's life, that they would lead that person to unbelief, that they would lead that person to rejection of the gospel if they surrender to that sin and pursue that life of wanton sin without any sense of repentance, without any striving to grow in holiness. That kind of thing is a serious thing. Now here in Luke 17, Jesus is warning his disciples, don't be a source of that kind of thing for others. Don't be a source of that kind of thing for others. We see the same term again in Luke, in Luke 7, 23. In Luke 7, 23 is an example. There, if you remember, Jesus said this to John. In the context, John was starting to doubt. He was starting to wonder, is Jesus really the Christ? Is he the one we've been waiting for? Jesus was doing mighty works. He was healing the blind. He was healing the lame. He was doing amazing things. But he was doing these things for Gentiles and for people who were, it was unexpected. But he wasn't doing things that John expected him to do, namely to bring judgment and go and to become a king and to reign. And John was starting to wonder, is this the one who is to come? Are you the one who is to come? He sent his disciples while he was languishing in prison to ask that very question. And Jesus said a number of things to him, but in verse 23 he says, blessed is the one who is, and here's our word, who is not offended by me, who does not stumble, who is not scandalized by my ministry. There, Jesus is encouraging John to see that there is blessedness for the one who sees Jesus' ministry, even though he defies some of our expectations, even though the life to which he's called us is a bit different than we might have imagined or expected it. The one who's not offended by all that, but says, no, I will follow him. I really believe he's the Christ. Jesus assured John with a beatitude, blessed is that one, who sees this. Now here in this text, Jesus uses a woe, which if you remember is the opposite of a beatitude. 
And he uses similar terminology, which seems to suggest that maybe these two texts are balanced. Luke 7.23 and Luke 17.1. The beatitude and the warning together, both speaking about what might be an offense. Blessed is the one who is not offended by Christ, but woe to the one who is a source of such offenses, who might lead someone to be offended by Christ. That's what Jesus is saying, and it's a serious warning, and you can see it in the description in verse 2. It's so serious that it would be worse, if that per- worse for that person to do that, to cause someone to stumble in this way, than if you took a millstone, a stone of some hundreds of pounds, tied it around their neck, and hurled them into the sea. That is better, Jesus says, to give us a vivid picture of how serious this is. That is better than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So what kind of offenses, then, might cause someone not to believe? What are the sins that Jesus has in view? Let me suggest a few that we see from across the New Testament. You can turn over with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. And here what we're going to see is several texts that show us the offense of the gospel, or what we could call the offense of the cross. The proclamation of the gospel, the proclamation of a crucified Christ, this is an offense to many. And so in Romans 9, verses 30 to 33, here the Apostle Paul speaks about the fact that most of his countrymen, most of the people of Israel, did not believe the gospel. And he explains why, because in accordance with what Scripture said beforehand, they were offended by it. They stumbled on the stone that is Christ. Here Paul says this, What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as it were, based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written... Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Here you hear an echo of, Blessed is the one who is not offended by Christ, but woe to the man who causes others to stumble at the preaching of the gospel. Why is the word of the cross, why is the proclamation of Christ an offense to so many? In Paul's day, particularly, he noted how it was an offense to Jews. And we can see that it's also an offense to Gentiles. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we quoted from words that lead up to this passage when we read Scripture corporately this morning, talking about how the word of the cross is folly, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Well, in verse 21 through 24 of this same chapter in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul would go on to say this, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block. There's our word again. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentile, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The gospel of a crucified Christ 
is a stumbling block for many because of human pride and because of self-righteousness. It offends our pride. If I tell you that you are so bad, you are so bad that the very Son of God, your Maker, had to become like you, had to take on flesh like you and live a perfect life that you failed to live and then die for you. Your Maker had to die for you to redeem you. That would offend you if you are disposed to self-righteousness and pride to say, no, I'm going to prove myself worthy. I'm going to prove that I deserve it. So the cross becomes an offense and a stone of stumbling. Or if because of your pride, you look and say, well, one who is the Christ, who is the Son of God, surely he would not suffer like this. Surely he would not die so shamefully on a cross. No, he's supposed to be a king. He's supposed to be Lord of all. And you'd be offended by that. And taking offense at that, you say, I won't believe it. That's what was happening in Paul's day. And it happens in our day too. It happens all the time in our day. But for those whom God has given the wisdom to perceive the reality of our nature, of our sinful nature, and the necessity of the cross, it's the wisdom of God. It's a joy. And we recognize that it is a blessed thing to trust in Christ. But for many, it's an offense. We ought to be careful as Christ's disciples not to cause people to be offended by this. I'll come back to that and talk about how, what that would look like and what that does look like in our own day. A second offense, then, that we'll consider is the offense of holiness. I read earlier from Matthew 5, 29 through 30. And there we see that Jesus makes very clear calls to his disciples to pursue holiness in their life in the midst of many calls to pursue holiness. In that particular call, he called us to purity in a life, in our life, to seek to live a life that is ordered according to God's design for marriage and for purity. Scripture is very clear that these things ought to be reserved for marriage so defined as a lifelong union between one man and one woman. But our society, the society in which we live, would have us believe that that's old-fashioned. That belongs to a bygone era. And it's not really realistic in this day. And so many are offended by Scripture's calls to holiness. Many are offended by these things. It doesn't have to be lusts of that sort. There are other things that lead to destruction. The Apostle Paul would tell Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, that the love of money has led many to destruction. Paul himself knew a man named Demas who had once worked with him, and yet because he was in love with this present age, Paul said, he had fallen away. He had stumbled. It became an offense for him. Psalm 14 vividly portrays how these things go together with unbelief. In Psalm 14, the very first words I think are familiar to many of us. It says, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. But very quickly we find out that this person is not a fool because he just is so stupid he can't understand the evidence that's before him. His foolishness is different. I don't mean to suggest that there's not a great deal of evidence for belief in God. But this atheist is an atheist because he's corrupt and he wants to excuse his sinfulness. He goes on, David goes on in Psalm 14, They are corrupt, they do abominable deeds, there is none who does good. And why? Because if you look down 
You see in verse 3, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge? Here's the foolishness. They are ignorant. They don't know. All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. Instead of faith and calling upon the Lord, they are corrupt and they mistreat others. And then David looks forward to a time where he says, there, in other words, like at that time and at, in that place, they are in great terror. For God is with the generation of the righteous. In other words, David looks forward to the final judgment and says, this is why they're fools. The reason they're saying there is no God is because they just want to live however they want to live. And God makes commands and God tells us to do things and to refrain from doing things. And they say, there's no God and so there's no judgment. And so I'll live however I please and I'll mistreat people and I'll take what I want. And so you see how that kind of sin ultimately leads to destruction. And now we have a picture of the kinds of offenses that might cause someone to stumble. We ought not to be a kind of people who lead others, particularly the focus comes here in Luke 17, onto little ones. Lead little ones to stumble. And why? Because they're naive, and because they're inexperienced, and because they're growing in their faith, and yet they're also dealing with the reality of sin in their lives. And it's very easy to convince them of falsehood. In our day, this comes in a number of ways. Think about the exclusivity of the gospel. Jesus said in the clearest terms, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. He did not say, I am a way. He did not say, I am a truth. He did not say, I am a source of life. And you can come to the Father by me. He said, I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. But we live in a world that will say, that's cruel, that's wrong. And there are many, even teachers of God's Word, who capitulate that and say, how is it really possible that that can be true? And so they take God's Word and they would set it aside in order to help people to feel better about themselves because they don't want to believe in Christ and follow the way of faith that He has declared and taught. A way of faith that ultimately finds its faith upon in Him. And so we have people, we hear these, term, the, the, these calls, that reject the exclusivity of the gospel. Because the cross and the gospel is an offense to many in our day, as it was in the day of Christ and the day of His apostles, so it is in our day. And there is a temptation to capitulate to that and to the pressure that comes with that and to modify the gospel proclamation, causing people to believe they don't really have to repent of their sin, and they don't really have to believe in Christ. It's not really necessary. And woe to that person. And woe to us if we would say that to anyone. Much more, how much more to a little one who is still growing in his or her faith. The second way that we see this in our day and age has to do with what I pointed to earlier, with questions about marriage and about intimacy and about purity. Scripture is very, very clear that we are to be a people who are faithful in our marriages, 
who are pure outside of our marriages. And marriage there is so defined as a lifelong union between a man and a woman. And yet we live in a society which is no different than Jesus' day that would corrupt this institution in any number of ways. And again, there are people who will preach a false gospel where they will say those commandments, those instructions in Scripture are from a bygone era. And there really are very few texts, they'll say, that make these claims, and usually they're taken out of their historical context, and so they'll muddy the waters, and they'll depend upon people to not actually look at them and consider those texts within their context to seek to understand them. And so rather than calling sinners to repentance, they take a person, or they they teach a person who might feel a guilty conscience, and instead of calling them to repentance and to find forgiveness through faith in Christ, they say, it's not really a sin. It's not really bad. When Jesus says it's so serious that you should cut your eye out or your hand off, lest you should go to hell because of this. No one's trying to just be cruel by saying that or by teaching it. We are called to holiness, and God has promised us everything that we need to pursue that life. He has not promised us that we will be perfect in that regard in this life. We will fail, but He has shown us that the means is through repentance and the forgiveness that we receive through faith in Christ, and that that should be the character of our life day by day as we make it our constant aim and our constant pursuit to pursue holiness in these regards. So beware of any teacher who would say otherwise. And woe to that person who would say otherwise, who would set aside the Word of God because they don't like it, because it wounds a guilty conscience. God's Word should wound our conscience, but He never wounds our conscience without giving us that which will heal that wound. There is a balm for every wound in His Word. We must hear it all. We must not set it aside. There's one other that I wish to consider this morning, one other offense, and that could be flaunted freedom. Paul wrote, writes about this in 1 Corinthians 8, 13. I won't have you to turn there, but I'll give you the context. Paul is talking about an issue that we don't deal with in our day, but they dealt with in Corinth. Namely, you go to the meat market, and some of the meat had been um, part of a pagan sacrifice. The question would naturally arise, can Christians eat that meat? And Paul's answer is basically, well, those gods are not really gods, and it's just meat, so God made it, you can eat it. But at the same time, he says, look, some in your church came out of paganism, They're little ones in the faith. They're children in the faith. And they don't yet know that those gods aren't real. They just decided, I'm going to believe in the God of Israel. I'm going to believe in His Son, Jesus Christ, because He is Almighty. He is the Supreme God. And they have not yet understood that there is one God. And Paul doesn't say, so what you need to do is have a class to teach them that. He says, if me eating meat will cause my brother to stumble, I will not eat meat. I won't flaunt my freedom in Christ in a way that will wound their conscience and cause them to think that I or they are free to sin in any way that they please. Paul set aside his freedoms instead of flaunting them for the sake of those who are young in the faith. We ought to do that with one another as well. That we prioritize. The point that I'm making is that Paul so prioritized the pursuit of holiness in the life of the Christian and love for one another 
that he even gave up those things which he had complete freedom to enjoy so that they might be built up in Christ, so that they might be built up and fashioned in the image of Christ. And that should be our priority too. It's a strong warning that we have from our Lord, but it's a serious and important one that we must hear and we must heed. So if we're to beware of leading people in a way that would cause them to stumble in such a way that they would be tempted to abandon the faith, and that's what's in view, that they would be tempted to go to their own destruction, then what do we do from a positive standpoint? And here in verses 3 to 4 we have the answer. Pay attention to yourselves. This is in the plural. Watch over yourselves. Pay attention to yourselves as disciples of Christ. In other words, we don't need to go out into the world and we don't need to be highlighting every single fault and sin of people who aren't part of this community of the church. They aren't disciples of Christ. That's not our primary objective, but we're to watch over ourselves. And Jesus taught us in Luke 6 that this begins with yourself individually. Remove the log from your own eye so that you can see clearly to help your brother to remove the speck that is in his eye, Jesus taught his disciples. So we start with ourselves and we pay attention to ourselves. And if our brother sins, here Jesus doesn't qualify it by saying he has sinned against you or he has simply sinned generally, but he does say if he sins, rebuke him. This doesn't have to be a harsh rebuke. You don't need to yell at him or castigate him. You simply say, you know, brother, I've seen this in your life. Sister, I've seen this in your life. I've witnessed this. Are you sure that's the way that you should be living? Here, look at God's word and what it says about the way in which we ought to live. And you gently and graciously call that person to repent of their sin and to return. And we ought to, if that happens, if we receive that, we ought to receive that gladly and with joy and say, thank you. I was not attending to this thing. I was not considering my words or my actions and the effect that they could have. And I'm so thankful for you, brother or sister, because faithful are the wounds of a friend, we read in the Proverbs. We should receive that well. And when we receive that rebuke, then, if we, if, if we repent, we're to be forgiven. And if you give that rebuke and someone repents, you're to forgive him. And it doesn't matter how many times whether one time or two times or three times or seven times in a day, and that doesn't mean on the eighth time then you're free not to forgive them. Seven is a number of perfection, a number of completion. Seven times in a day the man sins, the woman sins, and seven times that person returns and seeks forgiveness. What are we to do? Forgive. For this is the way in which God forgives us. We ought to forgive as He Himself forgives. Just as we pray, Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive our debtors. So Jesus calls his disciples, as he has elsewhere, to confront privately. And we know from Matthew 18 that if that person won't respond, then we take along other trusted believers. And if that person still will not respond with repentance, then we bring it before the congregation, but always with an aim in that confrontation to gain a brother or sister back through repentance and to restore them to this fellowship with God and fellowship with His church. And we always stand ready then to forgive. Every time, always to forgive. Now, in this context, the question often arises, must I forgive if my brother or sister does not seek forgiveness from me? If that person does not repent? And here I've been very helped by teaching of Robert Jones, one of my professors in biblical counseling, 
to distinguish between something called that he calls attitudinal forgiveness and transactional forgiveness. What do these mean? Attitudinal forgiveness is that I have an attitude of forgiveness that could be described by those words from 1 Corinthians 13. Love does not keep a record of wrongs done. In my life as a husband to my wife, I will offend her in various ways. and I will not always realize how I have offended her. And perhaps she'll offend me in various ways and she will not realize it. And it won't do for me to go and highlight every single one of those sins and say, you know, you did this to me and this to me. No, that wouldn't be loving. But very often I just need to say, you know what? Put that aside. I'm not keeping a record because I love her. And that's the way that we ought to be toward one another. If we love one another, we are ready to forgive. And so some things we just let it go. We don't keep the record. I think here in the context, Jesus' focus is really on things that are serious. The context shows us that we're talking about things that might lead to someone's destruction. Not every little nit that we can pick in a person's life. That's what we're focusing on. And so sometimes people will even offend us and we just need to be ready to have an attitude that forgives. But sometimes forgiveness must be transacted in order to have some restoration. Maybe the sin is so serious that it just nags on you and you can't get over it. Maybe the offense really is just serious in and of itself, whether or not it offends you. And it just needs to be confronted because of its serious nature. And forgiveness then needs to be transacted. Of course, we're taught by our Lord and His instruction and how to pray and His example from the cross when He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what to do, that our attitude should be one of forgiveness always. But Even for those on the cross whom he prayed, Father, forgive them, they needed to repent and believe in order to receive that forgiveness transacted. And so, sometimes it is necessary to transact forgiveness. So how can we do that then? If we deem that it is necessary, and it's not something that we can simply forgive without confronting it. Well, it begins with the confrontation of a faithful brother or sister. We don't sit there and we don't say in our hearts, uh, this person has really wronged me, but I'm just going to sit here and wait until they realize what they've done to me and then come and repent and seek forgiveness. No, if they've wronged us and that need, we need to do that, and we have an obligation to go and say, brother, sister, you've wronged me in this way. And to seek to be reconciled, to seek that out, not so that you might in pride be lifted up above that person and have them owe you something, but so that you might be able to give them the forgiveness that we ourselves have received from the Lord. That should be our attitude. And so if we haven't taken that first step, which does require courage, I acknowledge, if we haven't taken that first step, we ought not to sit holding grudges against one another, but we ought to seek one another out so that we might be people who forgive one another. And so we are to be a people who don't lead others to stumble, but we are to be a people who together seek to grow in holiness and seek to be faithful as instruments of our Lord, instruments that He will use to fashion others into the likeness of Christ so that together we will be fashioned together as the church, the body of Christ. And so we're encouraged then finally by the words of James in James 5.19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death 
and will cover a multitude of sins. That's what we're after. The salvation of souls from death. The covering of a multitude of sins. Because that's what Christ came to do for us. To save our souls from sin and to cover a multitude of sins. That's what we ought to be doing for one another. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray, O Lord, now that you would take these words, these words of yours from your word, and impress them upon our minds so that we might recall these words from Luke, from Romans, from 1 Corinthians, from James, from so many places. We might carry them in our hearts and in our minds and put them to work by your power and your grace that we might be a people, a holy people who pursues holiness not in self-righteousness and hypocrisy, but pursues holiness together with grace and with love and with humility and with repentance, but still takes seriously your calls for us to pursue holiness. May we do this with one another. May we do this together, O Lord, by your grace and by your strength. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.